uh, welcome to the podcast, everybody. And uh, yeah, it's really a privilege and an honor to get to speak with Dr. Drew Hart today. I'm very excited about this conversation and glad that he's here to share with us. Uh, Dr. Hart is the author of two books, uh, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, and also Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, uh, both books that I would highly recommend to you uh, because they are very informative and useful in thinking about um, our own Christian discipleship and what it means to be the church in our world today. Uh, so welcome, Dr. Hart. So glad you're here. Um, glad you could be with us today. Yeah, I'm really glad to be uh, with you all and to be in conversation. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So Dr. Hart, um, obviously a lot of our audience, we're, we're a Christian college here, small Christian liberal arts school. And um, one of the things that I found really interesting in your first book is you talk about your own experience at uh, a Christian college. Um, and you, you talk about sort of the, the problem of nice white people, right? And that you, in your time in college, you had the simultaneous experience of, on the one hand, you know, this was one of the nicest, you know, some of the nicest people you ever met, right? Just very polite and kind in so many different ways. And yet at the same time, uh, this was a place where you experienced racism, where you were, you know, you talked about the label of, of being a thug or a threat. So I wonder um, if you could talk about that experience some, um, what that was like for you, maybe share some experiences that might you know, sort of illuminate what that's like, especially for our white students and white faculty, um, and even what, um, you know, white folks can do in the midst of that to help address that. Uh, and maybe also some words for our students of color about maybe ideas about self-care in that kind of environment or things like that. Yeah, so, so I guess what's important for people to understand about me, even before I describe my experience at Messiah is um, my experiences that I came with before I got there, right? Growing up um, in the Philly area in Norristown, Pennsylvania, racially diverse community. My particular community was majority African-American, but the school district, the neighborhood, everything overall was about, in fact, like, I think right now it's like a third black, a third Latino, a third white, right? Like that it's, so in some ways unique, right? In terms of engaging, um, in that space and moving around in that space as a young black man. And then um, for three years, uh, my family, my dad was actually a pastor. And so um, we actually had a fire at our house when I was in ninth grade. And so we ended up moving um, to more like Philly suburbs, majority white, middle class, still racially diverse in terms of in the Philly sense of it, but, but, um, but majority white suburban context huge school 3000 kids and so for the first time like i was like a truly like minority in that space navigating and trying to figure out what life was like and so i had all of that experience with me um prior to coming to messiah um at this christian college kind of in some ways so much like so many different christian colleges all across um the country a, a school that has always in fact been very proud of its efforts around racial diversity and inclusion and trying to bring in different, you know, speakers and trying to be thoughtful about all of that. So all of that was a part of my experience at that time. And so when I came to the campus, I remember being extremely excited about 
studying with my brothers and sisters with Christ in Christ. I was a biblical studies major. I mean, I was very passionate and serious about my faith. Um, and, and eventually it took time and I could spend all day talking about the journey that I went through to getting there. But eventually I began to notice stuff happening, right? The looks, the comments, um, what a lot of people now call microaggressions, right? I usually call them paper cuts, um, but it was just one after the other, these cuts and they start building up um, little slights. I think, you know, um, you know, people referring to uh, one of my best friends came a year after me, grew up with him. I remember hearing someone that I knew well referring to him as a thug and just the cut of the way that someone could so casually talk about someone that they don't even know, right? Because I know that they didn't know the person. Um, and I think that it was it was just beginning to just overwhelm me. And at the same time, this was, it was one of the nicest, I mean, people are smiling when it's warm out, people are throwing Frisbees and laying out on the, I mean, it's just, you know, it just seems like a, un, almost like an idealistic like space that, you know, is this real life? I and mean, people are just happy, you know? And at the same time with that niceness, I was experiencing some of the most severe um, racism in terms of just the assumptions that people were bringing and projecting onto black people, both black men and black women who were studying on that campus. And so, yeah, it was a lot to kind of confront and try to internalize and make sense of what's going on because I'm like, these are supposed to be my brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't get where all of this is coming from. And in many ways, I often say like my own black community, my own black Christian community hadn't prepared me for white Christians not in terms of what I was going to experience and how to navigate that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, that, it was, a, 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 I guess maybe the best way to say it, it was uh, undoing of what I'd known, right? Or unsettling, maybe that's a better word, right? Unsettling me to some of the realities and some of the challenges that still um, plagued our society. So I do think that, I guess, if to answer your question, you know, for white Christians, I do think that it's important um, to move beyond maybe what we might call overly simplistic understandings of race and racism, in which we think that, um, to think that only mean people engage in racism, I think it's just unhelpful, right? I think that we miss completely what we're talking about when we imagine that, that you've gotta be willing to like, you know, um, lynch a person <laughs> or burn a cross on the yard or something like that. Um, and even those people probably went home and hugged their kids and tucked them into bed and loved them and gave them big hugs, right? And so this idea that meanness um, is the, the characteristic for, for racism and that nice people and kind people in general can't are not capable of engaging that kind of racism. In some ways just misunderstands the way that we're talking about a system of racism and then the way that we internalize and then project that onto others um, because we've made we've become too adjusted to the world as it is rather than the world as it ought to be and so yeah i think that that would be my advice is to that we've got to challenge our very definition of what we even mean by race and racism um, because there's a thin definition that's not really helpful and then there's a much thicker way of thinking about it that helps us understand what's been going on for centuries and then for students of color yeah absolutely i mean i think that's We've got to also be aware that on one hand, we are called to, to participate in what God is doing, God's deliverance, God's love, God's peace, God's hope in the world. And on the other hand, we also got to do some self-love, that we've got to care for ourselves, right? 
And uh, everybody needs to be able to find spaces where we can give, receive, and share love with others, where they can, where their full dignity and humanity is recognized and where they're built up and not always being torn out. And I think that sometimes on uh, campuses in general, and certainly Christian college campuses, there's a lot of expectations put on students of color as if they're the ones who are supposed to fix the problem, right? Um, and so we need these students of color to be leaders and fix all that. They're not the ones that created this problem. And it's unfair, I think, to put the burden of responsibility on these students. And so all across the nation, we see students of color feeling responsible for it. Um, certainly, we can all share responsibility as, as the church. Um, but the primary responsible are actually the people who are, have the most power and control over the institution. And that's never been people of color and certainly not students of color. Um, and so I think that um, we've got to expand our understanding of, of responsibility, but also then make sure that we create spaces uh, where students can find, um, again, that kind of love that affirms their dignity and helps them see themselves as God sees them. Thank you, Dr. Hart. Um, since this is for college students, what would you tell the average white Christian college student who's deeply rooted in their dominant society um, culture to um, when they experience someone uh, that contradicts that culture, um, a friend, a classmate from an oppressed or minority group? Um, yeah, what, what, would you, what would your advice be to them? Yeah, my, my advice would be is that we've got to learn to become really great listeners and learners from others. I think that um, some of what our history has done is has taught at least some white people, maybe not every white person fits into this, but certainly a lot of white people have fit into the category of feeling that they have nothing to learn. In fact, even before they've substantially engaged, let's say we'll say African-American communities, right? They might have minimal contact and engagement, and yet they feel like they are experts as it relates to everything black in the world, right? Um, and so uh, what, what would it look like to kind of actually embrace the kind of humility and the way of Jesus that we're all invited to have in terms of how we actually engage and learn from others? Um, that's, that's so often for centuries, white people always saw themselves as the teachers and never students, right? Um, what would it mean for that to be flipped on its head as Jesus always did where he said that the first are last and the last are first and literally flipped these hierarchies on their head um, and to take the posture of learning, um, to take the posture of receiving people's sacred stories and holding them dear and allowing that to change you, right? It's a vulnerable thing and it's a choice. You can, anybody can remain kind of hard and can remain um, kind of defensive and not allow other people's uh, lived experiences to impact and shape who they are. Um, but we can also choose to open ourselves up to the stories and experiences of others. And so I, I think that would be the first thing that I would invite people to do, um, to be seeking that out, to be curious about other people's stories, to understand, I mean, I think in some ways, this is what it means to be fully human, right? Um, to live in human ways is to be curious about other people and their, the way that they live and the way that they think and how they came to where they are. Tell me that story, right? That should be the posture that we have in general, but especially when we're talking about centuries of white supremacy and anti-Black racism and the way that the church in particular participated in that, right? That's the thing that has not been acknowledged. Because of that history, the inertia of it for centuries, we should be especially intentional about um, disrupting that pattern and saying, look, that's not the kind of people we want to be. We want to be more like Jesus. Jesus shaped folks 
um, who actually are clinging to the folks on the margins, edges, and cracks of society, right? That's what Jesus does with the uh, Samaritans and the poor and the vulnerable and the most excluded. He's He can't help himself, but like, like a magnet to those folks. Um, and so I think that um, that's an invitation, especially for those that are, have more uh, influence, who are part of dominant cultural society, um, that we could and just join in with the way of Jesus and actually approach that in terms of how we're gonna engage those who have been uh, marginalized and oppressed in our society for centuries. Yeah, you mentioned before that you were a biblical studies major in undergrad and I, I love that. Uh, that's my, my specialty is biblical studies and I, I love that. Uh, I see it coming through even in the way you're talking right now, right? And I see it, it was coming through in the video and. I mean, one of my favorite things about who will be a witness is just how deeply you rooted it in the Gospels, right? I mean, I, I love the biblical exegesis that you do uh, throughout that book. I wonder, um, are there, I mean, I know you talk about it some in the video and some of the book and people can go there for those things, but I just wonder, are there specific biblical texts which were um, maybe kind of pivotal for you that, that really, um, you know, often I think especially the kind of church background that I grew up in um, you know you you are trained to read the gospels in a certain way right and and especially as a white person like one of the tra ways you're trained to read them is to not notice issues of power and justice and things like that I'm just curious if there are particular passages that you think really kind of help expose those elements um, particularly in the gospels yeah, I mean, so I got to be honest, like, it's hard for me to not see that. Like, I'm yeah. always amazed, right? I'm amazed at how people can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not have their world, like, thrown upside down and flipped inside out. Like, it's actually, I think it actually takes work. Right. Um, like, But the funny thing is, for me, is, like, I, even, I mean, I've spent all this time in my life, you know, doing this, right? And I still, like, sometimes, like, that that sort of reading is so entrenched in me that like we'll have to work some, yeah. I mean, it's becoming yeah. more natural now. Right. But yeah. like, it's amazing how deeply embedded our lenses become, especially if yeah. you've been, you know, reading scripture your whole life. Right. So yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear I, you. And yet at the yeah, same time, I know. Like, so we're coming from different angles, yeah. which I appreciate that. But what maybe the, the one thing that really helps us um, is taking the time to understand some of the biblical backgrounds. We're just trying to get a glimpse. I mean, everyone doesn't have to become experts on the ancient Greco-Roman worlds, right? <laughs> like that's not, but to just have this basic frame, like like the Roman empire, right? <laughs> is there, that Jesus lives under the Roman empire. There are occupied people who are exploited and who are hoping to find deliverance from that. Like these basic things that are really important. Like if we don't have that as the backdrop, you miss everything going on, I think, in the gospel stories, right? And so I think that that's helpful. And then, yeah, to just be a, pay attention. I mean, every gospel, I think, does it in a different way. I think, I mean, Luke makes it very, I, I think Luke tries to make it plain, right? First sermon, Luke 4, 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? Quoting from Isaiah, right, 58 and 61. So he makes it plain. And then what does Jesus do? He does exactly that, right? Like that's his mission. He named it. He does it, right? Um, so that that little manifesto there um, makes it pretty clear the kind of what you can expect in the Gospel of Luke. Um, a lot around poverty and wealth, um, flipping things up on its head. In some ways, 
um, as I get into like ways that are uncomfortable for American Christians, right? Um, Because redistribution of wealth and reparations, all kinds of stuff comes up in ways that we're not comfortable with talking about often in our uh, thing. And so you have that in Gospel of Luke. You have Mark, (coughs) I think is a lot more subtle. Um, But I love the little little nuggets when you're paying attention, right? Like I love, um, what is it, Mark 3. Um, This is how you know, like Mark understands that there's something subversive about Jesus. Jesus tells a story. Um, of a man breaking into a home, binding the strong man and plundering his goods. And he's the, the, the one breaking in, right? <laughs> That's, I think that is fat. I mean, it's a, almost like a little Robin Hood story to illustrate um, God's deliverance and God's setting people free from, from captivity. Uh, powerful, right? Um, it just shows some of the subversiveness of the gospel of Mark. I think Mark is is underappreciated for how subversive and radical it is. A lot of people think Luke, that was, it used to be my, impl- uh, Luke. No, I think maybe Gospel Mark might have Luke beat. But I mean, that's all. Matthew, I mean, radical in terms of just social change then, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? What does it mean to break the cycles of violence in the world? So if you're situating and thinking about Jesus's words in, in the context of Roman oppression, then he, I mean, there's no wonder, I mean, when you think about like Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and so many others, even Gandhi, right? Inspired by the Sermon on the Mount, right? All for different contexts and places under different systems of oppression. And they're reading the Sermon on the Mount and they're like, this is revolutionary, right? This is a game changer. Um, and this is gonna be the roadmap forward for us, right? Um, there's something there that's gripping people in terms of a different way of living and responding to evil, not to respond evil to evil, um, but to overcome evil with good, right? And I think that um, Matthew opens us up to that. And even the Gospel of John, which sometimes gets overly spiritualized, it has significant spiritual implications, but it can get overly. And yet there has real implications for, I mean, Jesus took on flesh, which means something about our bodily, bodily life matters. And in that, then it's an invitation to think about the love the Jesus that lays down his life for others, right? And how do we live for others in that kind of way? And that Jesus proclaimed in John 18 that, you know, that his kingdom is not like this kingdom. And if it were, his his followers would be fighting just like everybody else, but they're but going about it a different way, right? Um, so even in the gospel of John, radical in response to, again, Roman oppression. And in fact, I love that in John 18, Jesus spars with uh, Pilate, in a more back and forth, even more than in any of the other gospels. And so uh, anyway, there's so much more we could say, I mean, about, again, the way that Jesus emphasizes women and the role that women play in Jesus's ministry and in his life. I think, um, again, those who are excluded and stigmatized in society in the way that they, the role that they play. I mean, just over and over again, God's reign. I think we've missed how powerful the idea of God's reign, God's kingdom, God's dream for us, right? Um, that's being birthed from below, right underneath the nose of the old empire, God is, has begun something new. Um, I don't know how we cannot get excited about that. I don't know how that doesn't upend our worlds. Um, and certainly at least the communities that we're a part of and the way that we live our lives, um, especially as it relates to histories of oppression and white supremacy and all these other exploitations that have happened in our society. Yeah, well, I'm kind of following up on that that same notion. I mean, another one of the things you talk about a lot is the the sort of hyper-individualized, sort of solely spiritual gospel. And you you mentioned right at the end there, what you were talking about, of you know, um, the ways that sometimes 
that particular version of the gospel has been sort of intertwined with these oppressive systems, right? I mean, that's actually something that I'm, I've become really interested in is the way that that particular version of the gospel, that sort of hyper-individualized, super spiritual, like body denying, you know, solely soul-focused kind of gospel has really funded, um, been the sort of theological underpinning of so many systems of oppression. I wonder if, I mean, I know you give a bunch of examples of this book. You, you do this great thing where you go from Constantine to Columbus. Um, I don't know if, I wonder if you could speak some to how you see that sort of narrow anemic kind of understanding of the gospel um, underpinning some of the systems that are still with us today. Yeah, and, and we could go in so many different directions with that question. My mind is like, like oh, oh yeah. pick one, Drew. Because uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is how the gospel was was said in such ways, and it starts under slavery in, in such ways that body and soul are ripped from one another. And then it's interesting, there's actually two phases uh, uh, in terms of of this dualism of splitting body and soul and how the gospel is understood as it relates to black people. One is there's, um, is the argument is that black people are, um, what is it like bodiless souls almost, right? They're just bodies. And the other one is that they're soul, they're body, soulless bodies, right? They're just, they're souls primarily, right? And I think that's maybe where some people are stuck right now. But the one is like, doesn't recognize they're in some ways not fully human because they lack a soul. And so what you do to the body, it doesn't really matter because they're not fully human like we are human, right? But then the other way it's, um, what all that matters is their soul, right? So we can continue to enslave people because we're going to give them Jesus now, right? <laughs> and so they should be, shouldn't everyone be happy that they're going to spend eternity with God? So, you know, it doesn't matter if we destroy their body and torture generations for centuries, right? Child after child being born under slavery or vice versa, all the way up to the present day, using that same logic for why it doesn't matter why people's living conditions can be like a living hell because, oh, the, the, the argument is, well, they can escape, you know, uh, hell in, in the afterlife. And so therefore it justifies it all, right? Um, deeply troubling. That sounds nothing like Jesus, certainly not the way that Jesus is orienting us to live. Jesus cares deeply about the uh, integrated body and soul, um, the full humanity, the whole self, and the fact that we can't love people in their whole selves in that kind of way. Um, it's And, and I, I see it all the time. Even my own students struggle almost like, well, I, I see what Jesus is saying, but he what he really means is, sure, all right, we're, we should be more thoughtful about the body, but still the soul is, is we're going to put that on a hierarchy, right? So we can't actually love them as an integrated people. Um, we still must prioritize one over the other, which, and at the end of the day, the moment you do that, you're going to de-emphasize the material fleshly life that people are experiencing. So that's just one way, right, that I think it still haunts us today that began under slavery. Um, but yeah, there's so many different ways that we've uh, reduced the gospel from being the story, the full story of Jesus, the birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the full transformational implications of that, to now it's just what I call the cradle to the cross jump, right? Uh, we love baby Jesus, and you love Jesus who died for you. And everything else in between is just kind of optional, like a buffet line. You pick and choose what you want, right? Um, and so no wonder we have such so many so-called Christians that look nothing like Christ because we haven't actually taught the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus as all being 
um, salvific for our lives and that we're all called to enter into and make that story visible for our neighbors, right? And so I think that there's a lot of, um, that shapes us, that domesticates and reduces the gospel down to this little bit and then misses so much of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seem to think are actually pretty significant, right? Um, they spend a lot of time on it. And, we're, and many Christians think like, why, why don't they get to the punchline? No, the whole thing is the punchline. The whole story of Jesus, the whole life, all of it matters. It's all salvific. Uh, speaking of Jesus and the methods that he used, um, in your video for the Kaufman, the Kaufman video, sorry, you mentioned um, Jesus just going up into the temple and he judged as you said, as you put it, he clashed, he confronted them um, in the temple. And uh, you said this really important line. We watered on the idea of what it means to follow Jesus, uh, taking up your cross for Jesus. Mm, yeah. um, in, in times, especially among the younger generation, probably around my age, um, there's this whole negative connotation and um, feeling uncomfortable feeling associated with confronting, clashing, um, protesting, etc. What would you say, um, why would you tell college students that it's important? I mean, Jesus did just that. And if we are to follow Jesus, um, for those who feel uncomfortable or associated with a negative connotation, what would your advice be for college students like that? Yeah, I mean, I I would say the first step is to, we need to immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus, right? I mean, that is the climax. That is the meaning of take up your cross because Jesus, it's defined by Jesus' own life. Um, that is the thing that ought to be orienting us. And so if we're uncomfortable with that kind of confrontation with evil, clashing with evil, right? Um, then in some sense, we're uncomfortable. Then we need to confess. We're also uncomfortable with the Jesus story. Um, because that that's, I mean, especially Mark and Luke, I think in particular, make it very clear. In fact, John's interesting too, because John's like, all right, um, Jesus is so radical. It just begins there, right? He, that's the clash. It's like right in the beginning of the story. But Mark and Luke, um, the, Jesus is, he's like, he's on his way. He's, for Luke, he set his eyes towards Jerusalem. It's over and over again. They just don't let you know, like this clash is coming. This, the whole thing is about the confrontation with Jesus in Jerusalem. Um, that's what it's all building up towards. And Jesus then invites us to reimagine our lives in such ways in which we also are willing to do that such thing. Now, it doesn't always mean going to, I mean, it could mean our own establishments in our world, um, but it's a whole variety of different ways in which, I mean, it's uh, Romans, right? The one that apparently Protestants love, right? We, we love Romans and all that. But you read and overcome evil with good, right? I mean, there's a echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. And what is that? In uh, chapter 12 and 13, there's echoes there um, that I think get ignored um, that are really important. And I think that's it's it's assumed. And there's other, I mean, we could go to other places throughout um, the New Testament where we hear these echoes of overcoming evil with good and not returning evil for evil and all of that. And I think it's really important that we recognize that what we're being invited to whether it's the language of take up your cross or that language of overcome evil with good is that we're going to participate in the way of Jesus in a particular way. Like it's it, what is fascinating about Jesus is, and I get into this with the Jesus Barabbas chapter is precisely that it's, it's how we go about clashing with evil, right? That's, that's the, the significance of the Jesus way is that Jesus is actually showing us um, the way that, that, 
that the people of God change and transform the world by participating what God is doing in the way of Jesus and not through violence and tyranny and coercion and all these ways that the, our world is set up, but through faithful confrontation, through truth telling, uh, through integrity, right? Through bearing witness to God's reign and, and being confident in that. Um, and so again, like I said before, like there's a reason why people have read the Jesus story, taken the particularities of Jesus' life and teaching seriously, and it ended up doing radical revolutionary things, nonviolent revolutionary things um, in response to that, right? Um, because that's the natural, it's, it's a natural outflow. And that's why it's happened all over the world at different historical moments, because this is a natural outflow of what happens when we take Jesus seriously, and then we actually try to follow G the way of Jesus in the midst of actual oppression and violence and exploitation in our world today. Um, and so, yeah, my invitation is either, I mean, I'd, I'd rather us just be honest and say, we don't want to, um, you know, take up the way of Jesus because we're uncomfortable with that. And so we're opting out of the way of Jesus. Let's say that if we want to do that, or we can actually take him seriously and see where this thing takes us. Right. Um, and that's scary because we don't know. I don't always know what is necessary, what I'm going to be called to. And sometimes I'm afraid, I'm like, oh, God, you really want me to do this? But I also know like who God, when you begin to understand God's character, who God has revealed God's self to be, which is expressly and most clearly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden things become more and more clear as we, as we orient ourselves in the story of Jesus. So, you know, we've talked a lot about um, sort of, I don't know, I, I feel like a lot of this conversation has been about like sort of persuading those who might be on the fence about whether or not you know, Jesus brings you to this radical call or calls you to, to, to live in this radical way. But of course, you know, as you've said, a lot of people have been there for a long time. You've been there for a long time, right? Like you talk about in Who Will Be a Witness, you know, all the different forms of activism that you've engaged in that all stem out of, you know, your discipleship to Jesus, right? Um, so for those who, who have been at this for a while and knowing that you have been at this for a while, I'm curious you know, when you get in deep to this radical lifestyle and do all these things that Jesus has called you to, what sort of spiritual practices sustain you through all that, right? Because like carrying your, you know, denying yourself and taking up your cross, like that's hard, right? Like you, I mean, you talk about how challenging that is. Um, and especially to put yourself on the line and all these, and, you know, whether it's sort of politically or through community organizing or protests or whatever the case may be. Um, what, I mean, so you've talked some about, you know, rooting ourselves in the story of Jesus. Are there other spiritual practices that, uh, sustain you in, in what can be this very challenging work? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess the big thing I would say first is that, you know, we're not called to be lone rangers in this work, right? Um, we're called to, to be part of communities, um, that, that's the ecclesia, the called out ones, not called out in the sense that we remove ourselves called out from our complicity and, uh, uh, you know, accommodating of the way things are and living under the reign of God, uh, aligning ourselves to the preeminence of Jesus Christ, but in community together. Um, what does it mean to be in community um, that can sustain you, that we do give, receive, and share love, that we do share resources, that we do support and encourage one another? And it's actually beautiful. I mean, when Jesus says, you know, uh, for those that actually take up the kingdom of God, like, you're going to have you know, a, multi, a multiplied family, right? Brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, 
parents, you know, um, it's, it's actually sustaining because it's actually a beautiful thing. This is not what, what I think can get lost in all of this is that it can almost sound like everything is just sacrifice. And that's just not true. It's actually a more beautiful way to be fully human as God desired and intended us to be in community with others and before God. That's the vision. Um, my goal is not that we would then all live in poverty. No, we live in such ways in community, not as independent, self-sufficient people, but in interdependent community with others where everybody has enough as God intends for us, right? It's a beautiful thing. Not me hoarding, not me, but what does it mean to catch a vision for God's dream for us in community, to worship God together, to love God and others, right? In community together, all of these things, but they have to be practiced. They have to be lived out. It's not just ideas and principles. You can only truly be a true follower of Jesus in community with others, right? It's not designed, it's not meant to be a, a lone ranger um, where you're just trying to be a savior to the world. That's, we already have our savior. So we don't need any more individual saviors to the world, but we are supposed to in community with others. And at times as we scatter by our, on our own to participate in God's deliverance in the world. And that's the invitation um, that we can join in with God's transforming um, the hurt and the pain and the disproportionate suffering that's going on. Um, and that somehow God can use us and our feeble finite efforts um, as God pulls all as shepherds and, uh, and guides all creation towards the consummation of all things. Is there anything that you just really, really want college students to hear? Anything at all that you would, any piece of advice that you'd like to give them? Sure. I guess the advice that I'll give is um, right now, I think we're in a, in a awakening moment where much of our society is becoming very, very aware of the way that the church has has played, has engaged in deep violence and oppression in the name of Jesus. And I think that it's for young people right now, I imagine that like, you're just oblivious to some of this because it probably wasn't talked about much in your own Christian communities, probably is something that's not at the forefront of our mind but we have a huge, ugly legacy in the past several centuries of enormous violence and oppression done under the name of Jesus. Now, there's some people just run and they're like, oh, I'm done with Jesus because of that, right? That's one option, I guess, that some people might take. Um, but for me, like, the, the question isn't, like, it's pretty clear to me that what was happening wasn't consistent with the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, and so it was actually a departure from Jesus, not uh, actual, it's not that uh, a genuine following of Jesus led to those things. And so I think right now we're in a moment where we need to, on one hand, do some serious confessing and lamenting, maybe first learning the history, take the time to actually learn. Don't shut down, don't get defensive. Let's learn what actually happened. Let's be honest, seek the truth about what happened, a truthful story of our past. Um, and then let's confess and let's lament and then let's repent, right? That means change our ways um, and seek to live faithfully in the way of Jesus. I think that that's the invitation. Um, and I think that our world is hungering and thirsting for that kind of witness, for that kind of public witness. A church that actually looked somewhat, even somewhat an ounce like Jesus would be really exciting, I think, for folks. I think that people are mostly disgusted with the church today precisely because we look so little like Jesus Christ. And so I think that's my invitation is that in the midst of all that has gone on in our past, for this past several centuries, 
um, that almost like um, hopping on an escalator, right? That we've got to go with intentionality against the grain, against the inertia, the movement that's pushing us in one direction, that we've got to decide that we're going to follow the way of Jesus, not the kind of the inertia of the kind of watered down domesticated Christianity that has been so a part of our world today. So I'm hoping that others will join me in that, uh, in that work. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Hart. The, the message of uh, taking up your cross and actually being like Jesus and reading the stories over and over and actually um, looking for the social justice parts of it and just not reading it um, from one particular lens is really important um, for college students. So I really hope that if you're listening, um, you... <laughs> you get that message and actually go back and read the stories of Jesus and see all the cool things that he has done and um, try to figure out what you could do in your community right now. So uh, it has been a privilege and an honor to hear you speak. And we just wanna thank you again. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Moesha and David. This has been great. Maybe one day we'll actually meet in person. That would be great. Yeah, thanks again so much for joining us. Uh, and thanks to all our listeners for, for joining us as well. <laughs>